Well, kids, as you make your way, as you make your way out for Sunday school, uh, we hope you have a wonderful time downstairs with your teachers who, have, who are excited to spend that time with you, sharing with you what God is saying and uh, speaking to you through God's word this morning. And so uh, for the rest of you, we are going to be spending the next few minutes together looking at the book of Acts, uh, specifically in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 19. Now, uh, as you're doing that, I, just, I, I want us to think for just a few moments about the, the song that we just sang together. And, and there's a line in the, I mean, the whole song is beautiful, but there's a line in the song that I love to imagine Jesus singing and declaring over his church. It says, fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. Now, I imagine there are a number of us here this morning that need to be reminded of God's omnipotent hand, to be reminded of God's ultimate significant power over all of creation. I imagine there's a few of us here who, who need to be en encouraged and reminded that God is with us, that he's a God who strengthens us, that he upholds us, that he actually causes us to stand and, and to persevere by faith. And, and, and as a church, I think it's important we remember that. I think it's important we not only remember that, but, but we declare that that's where we're going to stand. We're going to stand on the truthfulness, the, the firm foundation of who God is as declared to us through his word this morning. And so uh, we're, as we enter into a season of renewal together, as we think about what God could and wants to do among us as his people, it can be a little bit scary. It, it can feel a little uncertain. What are those things that God might want to remove from us as being not important to our growth in the Lord? What are those things that God wants to add to our community as ways that we can more uh, healthfully pursue him and, and grow in him? That can feel scary. Change is scary. But in all of that, I think it's important that we, we, we remember that no matter what God wants to renew or bring new into our midst, he is the firm foundation that will make it so. We don't need to worry about what's ahead for us because he's a God who will uphold us, who will cause us to stand, who will sustain us. And, and I, I think the hymn that we just sang reminds us that, that those fears we might have, the uncertainties of what's ahead, aren't really fears that have any substance to them because we have a firm foundation upon which we, as the body of Christ, the church, are built. We're not built on, uh, on this human personality or that human personality or this style or that tradition. We're built on the life and work of Jesus Christ. And that's a firm foundation, church. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a foundation that should give us confidence that no matter what's ahead for us, God is gonna do something exciting and good and powerful in and among us. Last week, we, we took a brief look at Jesus' invitation to the church in Ephesus for, for renewal, and specifically through Jesus' 
words to, to remember our first love. He's, he's hearkening us to look back on a time in our lives when we first fell in love with Jesus, but not just when we first fell in love with Jesus, but when Jesus became our first love, when he became our priority, when he became that passion of our heart that, that drove us forward in obedience and faithfulness to him because of who we've come to know him as, as our Messiah and as our King. This first love is something we here at Trinity are, are going to explore in the coming months. We're devoting ourselves. Let's, maybe we put it that way. We're going to devote ourselves as a church to exploring this first love in the, the coming months. And specifically, we're going to do that as we explore what God was doing through his church in Ephesus. So this church who's firm foundation, had a, a belief in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and King, was a church that Jesus invites into a time of renewal. And, and so over the next few weeks, even before we, we begin in the book of Ephesus, we're, we're going to take a look at the history of the church in Ephesus through the book of Acts. And as, as, that, uh, as the formation of the church unfolds, recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts. And so this morning... We're going to look at Acts chapter 19, and just a few verses together, chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 19. I'll read for us verse 8, 9, and 10. Uh, it'll be on a screen. You could pull it up on your phone or your tablet. However, it is most, the Word of God is most accessible to you this morning. I encourage you to open it and read along as I read it for us. Luke writes this, starting in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let me pray and give thanks for God's word. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who desires to make yourself known to us. And, and not just the things that you've done in the past, and not just the promises of what you will do in the future, but the God who is daily at work in the lives of his people, the lives of his church, the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you've done here at the church in Ephesus. May it be uh, something that reminds us of how you're at work here in Trinity, here in Fairfield, Connecticut, in 2023. So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make this word come alive to us. Help us to understand it. Illuminate your promise and your, your character to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was reading those, those verses, starting in verse 8, I realized it says he went into the synagogue, that he was Paul. That was Paul coming into the, the city of Ephesus. You may remember from last week, but, but there was a man named Apollos who had, who had begun to teach and preach in, 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 in Ephesus, and, and then along comes Paul, and, and Paul actually invites them to be the church 
based on belief in the name of Jesus Christ, the life and teaching of who Jesus was, and to be baptized into this life and receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to be at work in them. And as a result, the church begins to grow. We're told there's 12 men, 12 men that, that, that are following and listening to Paul. And so Paul says, hey, this is not enough. We're going we're gonna to go into the synagogue, and I'm going to start to tell them more about the kingdom of God. The early days of the church in Ephesus grew and expanded because of Paul's preaching and teaching over the course of about three years. We're told here in the passage some people embraced it and some rejected it. And not just quietly rejected it, but actually stood in opposition to it. They, they became defiant, speaking against the Christian way. And so Paul withdraws from the synagogue and goes to a place a hall of Tyrannus, which we don't actually know much about, right? But the point is that as a result of Paul's persistent ministry, persistent ministry, regardless of how people responded to or, or received the message, Paul consistently and persistently preached the message about the kingdom of God. And as a result of that, Luke tells us all the residents of Asia, which is a pretty big area, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, all the people of Asia. But here's the thing, to, to get to know the Ephesian believer's first love isn't so much to measure the outcome of Paul's ministry. From a historical standpoint, it helps us to know where and how Paul's word, uh, the word that Paul was preaching spread and the knowledge of God's kingdom spread. But, but from our vantage point of looking at this passage and trying to come to a knowledge of how the Ephesian believers first fell in love with Jesus and made him their first priority... We don't necessarily need to look at how the word of God unfolded, but we do need to understand what Paul's message was, what he was proclaiming and, and, and telling. And so for three months in the synagogue and another two years in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, Paul spoke again and again and again about the kingdom of God. Now, the New Testament is filled with teaching on the kingdom of God. In fact, if you wanted to go through the Gospel of Matthew, you would see uh, word after word after word teaching on the, the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, it, it, we're told, is eternal. It's, it's heavenly. It's, it's otherworldly. It's not of this world. It, it's not a kingdom that you can understand through the lenses of how you understand power and authority and kingdoms of this world. It's heavenly. God's kingdom is unshakable. It can't be stopped. God's kingdom belongs to the poor in the spirit and those who are persecuted for Jesus' namesake. It's characterized by righteousness and, and peace and joy. Now, to be clear, as we read through the scriptures and as we, as we understand it through the lenses of our Western 21st century eyes and ears, we envision the kingdom of God as a place. And it is a place, but it's more than a place. And, and this is what's important for us to understand, church, as we think about uh, living in and for the kingdom of God. We're not just living in and for a place that will someday come in completion, but we're, we're living for a person. You see, the kingdom of God is a reference certainly to a, a place, but, but even more importantly so, it's a reference to a person. 
It's a reference to the reign of a king. A kingdom must have a king. And usually when Paul spoke about the kingdom of God, he was referring to, to God's rule and, and to God's reign as a king. In Matthew's gospel, when, when Jesus tells his, his listeners to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, he, he's declaring his arrival. He, he's declaring to his listeners the beginning, the, the inauguration of his own rule and authority as king. Every four years, we celebrate the inauguration of a, of a new president here in our country. Well, Jesus, in declaring to the people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, is declaring the inauguration of his kingdom, God's kingdom, that, that, that the Father has entrusted to Jesus to be the king and to rule over on this earth. And so what Paul persistently taught here in, in, in the city of Ephesus to these people that he was inviting into the kingdom of God was that the kingdom of God had arrived in and through the life of Jesus. That, that Jesus truly was a king of this otherworldly, this heavenly, eternal, unshakable, peaceful, righteous kingdom. And his rule and reign stands in opposition to the kingdom that they were living in there in Ephesus. And so in, in, in reasoning and persuading the people of Ephesus about the kingdom of God, Paul was, was reasoning with the people to put their trust in a new king. To, to realize that, that there's, a, there's a new king in, this, in the territory. There's a new authority to, to live under and to submit to. There's a new king to, to, to trust in, and Paul wanted these people to understand they needed to abandon their hope in the earthly authorities of, of money and commerce, of, of magic and, and false gods, and of power and pros, prosperity. That, that's what the people of Ephesus were, were dealing with. I mean, this was, a, this was a, like a, a center of commerce and trade at one point. It was once a great city. It wasn't so much anymore, but even there, it had the, the kind of the makings of what it once was, a center of trade and commerce where, where money was power, where money was king. And if that didn't help, there, there was a, the Greek goddess of love, and there was a, there was a temple there in, in, in Ephesus. And, and so people were going after this saying, well, maybe this is the answer. Maybe this is the authority we should live for. Maybe, maybe we need to go into the, the, the marketplace and buy a couple of the idols that they make to, to, to this goddess. Maybe we should be obedient to, to what, what that religion says. And, and Paul's like, no, stop. There's a new king in the land, and, and I want you to know him. I, I want you to know his gracious and mighty and merciful hand of authority. So Paul's purpose in preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God wasn't really just to tell people, hey, just, you know, I know you've got all these options and the kingdom of God is one of them. Paul wasn't interested in just educating the minds of the people and saying, hey, the kingdom of God, that's another option for you to think about. It's, it's this great place. So let me tell you about it. Paul's intention was actually to convince their hearts and their minds that living for God's kingdom was not only worth it, but it was the only way to live their lives. It had to be their first priority, their first love. That's the only way to live in the kingdom. 
So Paul didn't just tell the people about the kingdom of God by declaring facts and figures about what the kingdom of God was. Paul wasn't in the business of just giving the people of Ephesus information about the kingdom of God. No, Paul persuaded and reasoned with the people about the kingdom of God and did so so that he might invite them to embrace it for themselves. Paul didn't want to educate the people about the kingdom of God alone and leave them there. He wanted, them, he wanted to, to speak to them in such a way that, that their own hearts were stirred up to embrace the kingdom of God and to make that their first love, to make that the priority of their hearts, the, the devotion of who they were. Now, I remember the first time I saw a movie in 3D. When I, when I was a kid, they didn't have IMAX theaters and, and, and the other 3D options in every theater you go to like we do today. So for me, it, it was a Muppet movie at, at Disney World. I had never been to a 3D movie. My parents took me in here, and I thought we were going to watch a movie. And all of a sudden, these things were come flying out of your face, and you're, you're ducking and all that. Right now, you go to Disney World, they actually spray water in your face to give you, they may, I think they might call that 4D or whatever, like give you further, further sensual, or, um, sensory experiences. <laughs> anyway, coming out of that show, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't have the words to truly describe this new experience that I just had. I, I didn't have words to, to tell, like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't grab someone by the shoulder and, and tell them about what had just happened, or the, sorry, the elbow, and tell them about what just happened in such a way that they're like, wow, that's awesome, I'm gonna, I, I, I like that too, you know? I, I, none of my words could do it justice of, of that experience. Similarly, I remember the, the first time that Tar and I visited the top of, of Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Now, I'd, I'd heard of Mount Washington. I'd seen it from a distance while driving on the highway. I'd seen it in pictures or on postcards. But, but nothing could prepare me for this wholly different experience of standing on top of the mountain and seeing in every direction for like 100 miles. Nothing could prepare me for, for the difference in smell and feel and, and even the overwhelming emotion you have for this view that's before you. It's, just, it's beautiful, but even now I realize that that word is insufficient to really describe an, a, the experience one has when they stand uh, on top of... Mount Washington, the only way you could truly and fully understand what I'm talking about is for you to experience it for yourself, for, for, for you to, to, to go there and to see what I'm talking about, to, 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 to taste the air and, and to feel it on your skin, to smell it in your nose and, and to see the views for yourself. And the only way for you to do that is if someone persuaded you it's worth your time. If someone convinced you, hey, this is worth your effort to go and, and take a ride to the top of Mount Washington, uh, I guess you could hike it if you wanted to, but, but you could also drive it too, which is the better option in my mind, uh, to, to go for yourself and, and to, to experience being on top of Mount Washington. How about this? Not, not all of us can hop in the car after church today and just drive up to Mount Washington, so maybe a closer illustration will help us embrace what, what we're talking about here. What about going to, uh, to, to Milkcraft in town? You ever tried? Milkcraft is this ice cream parlor, this ice cream store, where you go and they make these small batches of ice cream right in front of you using liquid nitrogen. Have you ever, no, I mean, prior to going, I've never experienced eating ice cream like this. Not only have I never experienced eating it, 
I've never experienced seeing it made in front of me like this. It's a pretty, I mean, you see them pour the liquid nitrogen in and it overflows the, the bowl and it's like, you, I mean, I think they even put ropes up, if I remember correctly, uh, so that you can't get too close because you could, I mean, it could, the liquid nitrogen could hurt you. Most of us have tried ice cream. Most of us have gone to, 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 to different uh, places where you can get ice cream throughout your lives, throughout childhood and adulthood. But this is a wholly different experience with ice cream. And I can't truly really describe the experience for you in such a way that you know what I'm talking about unless you go and watch them make it and taste it for yourself. David's, David's words, he, David, of course, is, you know, he's a poet, wrote many of the Psalms we have in our Bible. But, but as, as a poet, his words come to mind for me. In Psalm 34, verse 8, Paul, uh, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? He doesn't say, hey, think about and, and know that the Lord is good. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And only you can do that. I can't tell you how good it tastes. I mean, I could tell you how good it tastes. But really, you don't know how good it tastes until you taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Only you, in the same way as, as, as we think about what Paul's doing in and among the people here in Ephesus for almost three years, only you can taste and see that the kingdom of God is good. This is Paul's message over and over and over again as he tries to persuade the people and reason with them, not just about this one other option of religion, but about this way of being, this life that you enter into through faith in Jesus Christ. And only you can truly taste and see that the kingdom of God is good. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not our experiences of the kingdom of God that make it good. But you won't know that it's truly and fully good until you taste and see for yourself that it's good. And, and, and for this to happen would require someone to persuade you to taste it. To, to invite you to see it for yourself. And so... Again, for close to three years, Paul spent his time reasoning with and persuading the people in Ephesus that they too might taste and see the kingdom of God is good. <clears throat> and for themselves, they would see it for themselves. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't me standing up here and, and, and telling you about what God's word says. What I should be doing when I proclaim what God's word says is make sure to invite you to say, hey, don't just take the pastor's word for it. Go and see for yourself. Go practice it yourself. Understand for yourself that the Lord is a, good, is a refuge, a strong refuge and a tower, right? Understand for yourself God's faithfulness to his promises, don't just take the preacher's word for it. Taste and see for yourself. And, and this is what Paul did. He wanted to see people have more than just a knowledge about the kingdom of God. He wanted people to live their lives out of the firm belief that Jesus is their Messiah, that Jesus is the king over the kingdom of God, and that his reign and his rule has come. It's now. I mean, I, I, could, I, I could stand up here, Paul could stand up here till we're blue in the face. Any preacher could stand up here till we're blue in the face because we believe that this is true and good. 
But that's not, that's not sufficient. What's sufficient is for you to, to, to read it for yourself, to believe it for yourself, to taste and see for yourself that it's good, and to live in light of the kingdom of God as he declares it to us. And so for Paul, he, he wanted the people in Ephesus to live out of this firm belief that Jesus is their Messiah and their king. And, and guess what? This was his custom. This was what he would do. He, he would pursue this purpose, this ministry, day in and day out, wherever he went. Luke tells us in Acts 18 that when Paul was in Corinth, he went straight to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When he first travels to Ephesus, again, he went straight to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. In Acts 17, verse 2 to 4, we're told that when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, he found the synagogue, and guess what? Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He's not just telling, him, telling them feelings that he has about the kingdom of God. He reasons with them from the scriptures and say, hey, you need to see. You need to, to taste for yourselves. Let me point to you where in the scriptures God had anticipated this day, where God had pointed to this day. He reasoned from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ is God's anointed one, the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. See, church, it was Paul's routine when he found himself in a new place to begin in the synagogue and to begin by explaining, improving, and persuading the necessity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But, but Paul didn't do things this way just because it was something to do to keep him busy. He, he didn't do things this way because he, he really liked apologetics and, and, and speaking to crowds. No, Paul's motivation and, and his, his ministry purpose and passion was to, to reason with and persuade the people to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and King. Not to, not to convince people to think like he thought, but to believe in such a way that they lived in light of that faith. If you flip your, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul, Paul kind of, he says this about his own ministry. He tells the, the Corinthian church, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that's his foundation, knowing the scriptures, knowing God, knowing his promises, knowing Jesus as Messiah, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. See, Paul's motivation for persuading others is his own knowledge of God and his belief in Jesus as Messiah and King. You may remember his own testimony, being confronted. He, he was out persecuting Christians, walking on the roads to Damascus when, when Jesus confronts him face to face and blinds him. And, and, and for Paul, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and being confronted by him the way he was forever changed his life. His, his own experience of tasting and seeing that the that the Lord is good, changed his life forever. 
Now he can't help but, but tell others about it and invite them to join him. Paul has a firm knowledge of what his first love is. Not just when he first fell in love with Jesus, but also what his first love is. His, his priority devotion of his heart and mind was to follow Jesus because he too had come to that place of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And as a result, he can't help wanting others to know Jesus the way he does. There, there's a story, there, you know, modern day magician, Penn, uh, of Penn and Teller, he, he's, he's an atheist. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in God. But, but he, he tells us, I think, is a kind of an interesting story about someone who did try to share their faith with him. And, and, and as an atheist, you might think, well, well, the assumption is that as an atheist, you're like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want, I'm offended by the fact that you're trying to talk to me about this. But, but he takes a, a different perspective. He says, if, listen, if you believe that there's such a thing as a heaven and a hell, and if you believe that, 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 we're, that we could go there, that we could either go to heaven or we could go to hell, then it's an extremely unloving thing to not tell someone. Or, or in other words, it's a very loving thing to share that news with other people. So he's not offended by someone sharing their faith with him. In fact, he says it's almost ironically unloving if you don't share your faith with others, whether they believe what you believe or not. See, for Paul, his knowledge of the kingdom of God and his love for Jesus drove him to reason with and persuade others of the richness and the goodness of God's kingdom. He, he's, not, he's not looking to, to stand up in, in, in the public spaces and, and be kind of um, celebrated as a great orator or, or, or gathering lots of, of crowds to kind of stroke his ego. He was doing the ministry he was doing to see others put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah and their King. And as a result, that they too might see their own lives transformed the way he saw his own life transformed on the road to Damascus. See, this kind of transformation doesn't occur, church, because Paul debated ideas with the people, or, or at least only debated ideas with the people, but because Paul stirred up and challenged their deeply held beliefs through the acts through the act of reasoning with them. By, by reasoning, Paul wasn't engaging in some mental exercise of logic and convincing. He engaged their heads and their hearts. He stirred up their hearts that they might taste and see that the kingdom of God was good. The, the word Luke uses to describe what Paul's doing is the same word that Jesus uses in the gospel of Luke to describe an internal thinking and posturing of the heart. And it's this internal posture of the heart from which people make value-based decisions with their lives, how they, where they live and the direction they go. In Luke 5, after Jesus heals a crippled man and forgives him of his sins, the Pharisees get upset because Jesus did something that, that, that only someone with authority could do, namely forgive a man of his sins, to cleanse the soul of a person. And look what Jesus says to the Pharisees in, in verses 21 to 22. And, and, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And here's the, this is where that idea of reasoning is coming from. When, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your minds? No. Why do you question in your hearts? Now, the, the New King James and the New American Standard Bible and a couple other English translations say, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Now, I think we typically think, when we think about reasoning, we think about mental exercises, right? But reasoning is not primarily an exercise of our minds. It's a matter decided in our hearts, in the same place that our values and our beliefs reside. And again, it's from this seat of values and beliefs that we live out the trajectory of our lives, So I think it's important for us to see that that Paul's ministry among the the people of Ephesus wasn't focused on convincing people to to just think like he thinks. No, Paul's intention was to invite the people to live from a new heart in light of this new truth that he's proclaiming, namely the arrival of the kingdom of God, the arrival of the reign of Jesus, their Messiah and King. Paul wanted the people of Ephesus to do what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6, to to live their lives seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's where that first love comes in. It's, It's not just hearkening back to that time when they first fell in love with Jesus. It's recognizing that the invitation to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is an invitation to make King Jesus a first priority in your life. And, and out of that priority, every other value and, and belief and, and, and decision you make with your life is influenced by first and foremost, putting Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness as your first love, as your first devotion. Uh, so Paul wasn't in the business of persuading people to, to adopt a, a bumper sticker faith where people say they're members of, or citizens of the kingdom of, of God, but it's really just one of many labels that they have on their life, right? Any one of us can slap a bumper sticker on our cars that tells others that we're, we're a fan of the Yankees or something, right? But that doesn't make you a player on the team, Right? That, that, that doesn't make you someone who can go out in the field and compete with the rest of the team. Paul was not out to build a church filled with bumper sticker followers of Jesus who said that they were Christians, but then lived a very different life from, from a heart that was very different than the, the one Jesus lived from. See, the first love of the, of the Ephesian believers wasn't a set of doctrines and ideas about Jesus. The first love of the church in Ephesus was a priority for seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so, church, this morning, I I just wonder if our first priority is seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, Uh, of submitting ourselves to Jesus' authority, of saying, Jesus is my king, and I want to live as a a citizen of his kingdom. I I want to be shaped by his rules, his laws, his love, his mercy, his character. I I want to submit myself to his reign and rule. You know, as we enter into a season 
uh, of renewal, as we were intentionally uh, giving ourselves to this idea of, of God renewing our hearts and our minds. It's not asking, hey God, should we do this program or that program? It is first and foremost a prayer. God, renew our hearts for you that we might make you our first priority, our first desire, that our first love might be to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Now, I, I know that we live in a day and age where our hearts and our minds are bombarded with values, with, with, with an invitation to try this, do that, enjoy this. But church, I cannot emphasize enough. The first love that, that, that Jesus invites the church to remember in Revelation chapter two is these early days when, when Paul preached and proclaimed persistently this message to the church in Ephesus that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Church, that's that's what God's inviting us into. That's what God desires for us. That we might renew our commitment to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So church, remember your first love. Remember how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity in the kingdom of God. I'm excited to see what God's gonna do in and among us as we pursue his kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks because you are the God who is at work. Lord, we, when, when we desire to see you to do a new thing, it's not depending on our strength, our ability, our knowledge. It's depending wholly and fully on your hand at work in and among your people. Lord, I pray that we would not just think about you in new and different ways, but that our hearts would be stirred up with our minds to be fully devoted to you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Give us the courage and the strength to faithfully and obediently follow you as you make it clear to us how we can be a people in 2023 in Fairfield County who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness together as your church body. And Lord, we will give you all the honor and glory and praise for what you will accomplish. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.